Well, first of all, I apologize for my voice. Um, this happens every year. Uh, as I get into the winter, and especially as the boys' basketball team heads into the postseason, <laughs> and I, I, I have to watch. I have to guard my testimony at these games, you know. But, uh, but I, I, do, um, I do tend to lose my voice, and so I apologize for that and any clearings of your throat that it causes you uh, in listening to me. Um, well, as we said, today is week three in the season of Lent, and we are on Lamentations chapter four. We've chosen to work our way through this difficult and challenging book. We have not done it in all my years here. And uh, again, uh, Lent is a time for heavy things. Lent is a time for the deep dives into things that uh, through most of the rest of the year we try to skirt around and avoid. And so um, we're very glad to have John and Jackie here today. And um, you have walked into the middle of a, uh, a difficult and challenging series. So um, not every Sunday is this, uh, uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless, we are here uh, today. So uh, the Lord obviously has this for us. I'm reminded, you know, that, that I didn't put lamentations in the Bible. You know, it's not like I thought, you know what this church really needs is this book. That, it wasn't my decision. Uh, the Lord, the Lord in his, in his sovereign inspiration Put this five poems that talk about such dark things as mothers cannibalizing their babies. I mean, I didn't put that in there. The Lord put that in there. And he wants us to hear it. He wants us to read it. And he put it in the form of poetry. You know, Dobson always gets on me about when I use poetry in, <laughs> in my sermons. Well, Mark, it's right here in the text now. There's nothing you can say to me now. This is poetry. Um, but poetry, the beauty, the beauty and the importance of poetry is that poetry tells us things, but as, as uh, Emily Dickinson says, you know, slant-wise. Uh, it doesn't tell us things head-on. Uh, it tells us things from a side angle. It tells us things through imagery. It, it operates on the mind, but also on the heart, on our sense of experience. Poetry enters you into something and let you feel it on another level than prose often uh, does. And we've been reading now three poems of the prophet. We believe it's Jeremiah, but it may not be. Uh, but whoever is doing this, the, the prophetic poet, has been drawing us into a very dark reality. And that is the reality of the judgment that God is bringing against his people in the kingdom of Judah. Be and not, not because our God is quick to anger, not because our God has a bad temper, um, but rather he has sent over centuries prophets to the kings of Israel and to the kings of Judah, calling them to repent, letting them know that this path is a path that will lead to destruction. But the prophets came along and they preached peace. Everything's fine. Even, even what we just sang, uh, uh, in a challenging uh, psalm there, and, and even sometimes challenging to understand when you the, the psalm is broken up to fit meter like that and you're trying to read it and understand what you're, what you're singing. But, but one thing we were singing in there was, hey, we thought that you, know, you, you who have forgotten God, he says, you who have, live as if there's no God, you thought that I was the same, that I had become like you, that I also had forgotten, but I have not forgotten. And this is true of us. We tend to live. We, look, it's fine. It's a beautiful day out there. I mean, we're, we're a world in high rebellion against God. And yet we're doing fine. We're doing fine. Yeah, 
Yeah, sure, there's some economic troubles. We'll all grant that. There's some foreign policy issues. We're all concerned about the price of energy. Wait, there are some issues we have to worry about. But for the most part, we've been doing fine. We're doing fine. We'll probably continue to do fine. Peace, peace. And you think because we've kind of forgotten and everything is fine, you think God has forgotten. But in Psalm 50, I have not forgotten. And what we see in Lamentations is the remembrance of God. The Lord had been saying through his faithful prophets, repent for judgment is coming. Like we heard in the, from the author of Hebrews today in Hebrews chapter 3. While it is still called today, repent. Do not squander today for there is no promise of tomorrow. So this brings us now to the fourth poem. You'll remember poems one and two. Each of these poems you can see have 22, uh, 22 verses because there's 22 letters in the alphabet. Each verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. It's an acrostic poem, except for chapter three, which has 66 verses because three verses have A and then three verses, you know, and so forth. So the middle poem is that is a triple acrostic. Um, but now here we are back to four. And in chapter three, we got a little bit of hope in a, in a very dark and disturbing book. In chapter three, last week, we considered the hope that was there. There was brightness. The, the, the prophet in this utter despair reminds himself of the mercies of God, which are new every morning, and the faithfulness of his God. And even in the midst of the darkness, he clings to the faithfulness of God as his only hope, and he is right to do so. But now we return in chapter 4 to a description of the despair again in this poetic way. And the poet begins here with these horrible reversals that have taken place. You know, how great Israel was, how great Judah was, and now to what it has become. And I think we would do well here to remember like the prayer of Hannah. You'll remember when Hannah was, was uh, longing to give birth to a child and she couldn't get pregnant. And she was in utter despair. And she and, and the and the other women were mocking her. If you remember this in 1 Samuel 1, the women, the women were mocking her, and she was feeling the despair of this. And so she she prayed to the Lord and then she began to prophesy. And and her and her prophecy was the day is coming when there will be this great reversal, that he who is filled will be empty, and he who is empty will be filled. And the one who has much will be stripped of what he has, and the one who has nothing will be given much. And that song was taken up in Mary, in Mary's Magnificat. As she, uh, the virgin, is, is given the news that she's going to give birth to Messiah. And then she breaks forth into prophetic song. And her song is the same thing. Be, be warned, you mighty. The day will come when you will be torn down and the lowly will be exalted. This, this amazing reversal is a warning that comes through both of these amazing women in the scriptures. And now we see it falling out upon Israel here in Lamentations 4, just amazing things. The gold, he begins with the gold. He, he can see the temple, the sanctuary with all of its gold and all of its precious stones. And in that, the people, right? That the, the temple, it also represents like the people, the house of God, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold, the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. And he relates this immediately to the people, the precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, 
how they are now regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of a potter. You know, they're shattered to pieces like pottery. These, these men and women who were precious stones as sons of God Almighty, just like the temple itself in such beautiful array, that could never be touched. And now the gold is dimmed with dust from the rubble. Just Babylon came in and just laid siege to Jerusalem and then starved them out, scattered the people as we'll hear, chased them down, took them into slavery and just disassembled the city. And, and the, 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 the poet here is looking back and seeing the gold of the temple just dimmed with the dust of the, the rubble that's been stirred up and all the gems just scattered out on the streets. But that is a picture of the people, the sons of God, the daughters of God, who were so precious like fine gold, now just bedraggled. A, a, a mess wandering out of the city. We're going to see fleeing to the hills, out to the wilderness, just like the temple. And then, and then just this sort of revelation of how bad it's gotten. He says, even the jackals, even the jackals feed their young. When we think of beautiful things, we don't think of jackals. When we think of images of righteousness, we don't think of jackals, but even the jackals. Care for their young, says the poet, but not my people, Israel. They've abandoned their own children. They don't even feed their own children. The, 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 the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth. The children ask for bread and no one will give it to them. It's like it's gotten to this place where it's so bad that mothers and fathers are, are seeking their own self-preservation at the expense of their own children. You, you, you sit in a position like ours and we can't even imagine such things. Can't even imagine such things but that's what that's what the prophet here is getting at how how bad it has become and then back to the reversals in verse 5 those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets those who were brought up in scarlet that is like in purple like royal robes you know that those who were living uh the uh, fancy lives you were dressing in scarlet and purple now embrace the ash heaps you lived in your high towers, you lived with all your wealth, you had all this glory, everything was going well, fancy dining, fine clothes, and now you're pawing through ash heaps looking for a morsel of something to eat. This is the amazing reversal that has come. In verse 6, he pauses here and and again, just gives another statement of how bad it's come. So he's he's going reversal and pause reflection and then reversal and just pause and reflect so the first pause we got was, hey, the jackals, and now mothers don't even uh, are not even feeding their children. And now he pauses again in verse 6. The punishment and the iniquity of my people is greater than the punishment of Sodom. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, it just to this day, stand as like just a picture of sin and vice and the judgment that comes down upon it. I mean, God just unleashes fire from heaven and consumes the city. Okay, that's, that's bad. That's, that's severe. And here the, the prophet says, this is even worse than that. This, in Jerusalem, of all places, is worse than Sodom. We are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It was better for them. They were overthrown in a moment. We're being starved out. 
We're being chased hither and yon through the mountains and through the hills and out in the, in the wilderness. It's worse for us. And then back to the reversals in verse 7. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow, like the women were, were, were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now, their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized, these beautiful women of the city, go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It's become as dry as wood. And then a contemplation, those slain by the sword are better off than those who die in hunger. For these pine away, stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. And then the utter horror in verse 10. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They have become food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is how bad it has gotten that they're cannibalizing their own dead children in order to survive. So you've hit, you've hit a rock bottom when you come to this kind of uh, disaster. And this is what has come upon Israel. And then almost to sum it up in just the first line of verse 11, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. And it's in that line, and I, I, uh, I titled the, the sermon today, The Lord Himself. Um, it's because I was looking at the ESV when I, when I, uh, when I chose it, because that's how the ESV says it. Um, but we could just entitle, The Lord Has Fulfilled His Fury. And you'll remember that throughout the book of Lamentations, and this is the reality we have to get to. The Babylonians are not mentioned once in this book. And the Babylonians are the ones doing this. What's, what, you're, what you're not seeing in that, we're just hearing the utter disaster, but what, what the poet is not telling you is the one who's doing this to them are the Babylonians. The Babylonians have invaded them and just torn them apart. They are the ones that have starved them out in the city. Yet, we're four poems in, and little uh, spoiler alert, even in, in poem five, the Babylonians are not mentioned. You know who's mentioned? God. The poet sees through the Babylonians. The Babylonians are a problem. And the Babylonians in God's time will receive their judgment. But the poet knows what's going on here. This is not a problem with the Babylonians, as bad as it is. The Babylonians are the hand of God. That's how the poet understands it. In the coming of the Babylonians, in the siege, in this destruction, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. This is the wrath and judgment that the Lord is bringing upon his people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. In verse 12, we get the shock of the nations. Like this is, this is inconceivable. I mean, since the, since the Exodus, you'll remember that out in front of the people of God, Rumors started to spread like, hey, don't mess with these people. Their God does awesome things on their behalf. Remember, even Rahab, when they get to the land and the, the spies go in and they find Rahab and the spies tell Rahab that they're from Israel. She said, oh, she, I've, heard about, I've heard about what your God does. You know, and she hides the spies and sends the, the guards out another way and she's preserved. I mean, word had gone ahead of them that God is with this people and he will protect and defend them. It is therefore inconceivable 
that this kind of destruction could come upon these people. And that's the shock that the poet goes on to talk about in verse 12. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They just, this is inconceivable. The poet acknowledges this. This isn't just inconceivable for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is inconceivable for all of Jerusalem's neighbors. They would never have believed if you would have told them. Wait, they entered Jerusalem and tore down the... No, you're lying. It can't be. That's what kind of shock this is. Now, why would this happen? Why would this happen? He goes on to tell us in verse 13. You know why this happened? Because the sins of her prophets... Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, you had some faithful prophets, we have them recorded in the scriptures, who came preaching the truth. And you know what happened to them? They were thrown in prison. They were beaten. They were executed. Who wants to hear a prophet who tells you bad news? No one wants to hear that. So you get rid of those prophets, and you bring in the prophets who tell you what you want to hear. This is the danger for any king. The danger for any leader. You surround yourself with people who flatter you. You surround yourself with people who tell you the things you want to hear. That's why I'm telling you even today, it's good you're here today. Because I'm telling you things you don't want to hear. I'm saying things I don't want to hear. We need to be surrounded with truth. Not, Not surrounded with flatterers. But the kings of Judah surrounded themselves with flatterers who told them what they wanted to hear. And so the prophets sinned in not telling them the truth because of the sins of the prophets and the iniquity of her priests. The priests also wouldn't do their job. We got faulty prophets and faulty priests who refused to obey God. Instead, they satisfied the king who who, who may be a threat to them, who shed uh, in her midst the blood of the just. So they stood by while the just were having their bloodshed and maybe even participated in it. So the rottenness had gone right down to the core of Judah, to her kings, to her prophets, and to her priests. And what was the result now? In verse 14, the priests have wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. This is the prophets and the priests. They cried out. So these are the, here, here come now almost, you just see them just wandering out of Judah now. Blind prophets, that's not good. Prophets are your seers. And bloody priests who are supposed to, the image here that the poet is getting at is the priests are supposed to be clean. Of course, spiritually. And you'll remember that they, they had to wear white robes when they went into the, to the temple. They had to to wash in the bronze laver. There were all these cleansing rituals and they had to wear white robes. All of this symbolic of the spiritual cleanness and purity that they were to have as they enter into the sanctuary of God's people, representing God's people. And so, But you've got blind prophets. And you just see them wandering out of, out of Jerusalem blind. You've got priests who are supposed to be pure who are just saturated and soaked in blood and dirt and filth and they're unclean. And while it was probably historically true, it's also spiritually true. I think that's what the poet's getting at. This image of these dirty, filthy, disgusting priests that are now bedraggled and also wandering out of the city. They wander out, and when they get out there, even the nations say to them, get away from us. 
you're unclean. Go away, unclean, go away. Do not touch us. And when they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they will not dwell here. Even the nations don't want them. Again, this is how bad it has become that the the priests and the prophets, the servants of the people and the servants of God are outcasts and they're disgusting and uh, in their blindness and in their blood. The face of the Lord scattered them and he no longer regards them and the people do not respect, respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. So one reason that we're in this mess, I know the nations are astonished. They can't even imagine that this could happen to Jerusalem. But one reason this happened is because the prophets and the priests have just completely abdicated uh, their responsibilities. But here's another, here's another reason this has happened. You get this in verse 17. It's just tucked in there, but it's a historical reality. Still, so our priests and our prophets fail. They're wandering out, outcasts from Judah. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. Uh Uh-huh. Here's another part of the problem. One of the things that got them in this mess was they had made a treaty with Egypt. Now, they were not to make treaties with the other nations. Why do you have to make treaties? God is your God. He will. Def- he is your mighty fortress, your bulwark, your defender. Right? Even says, we, we thought we'd hide under your shadow against all the nations. Yes, that was the point. You, could, you don't need treaties. If you have treaties with other nations, what you're doing is hedging your bets. You're saying, I know God's got our back, but just in case he doesn't, Let's make a deal with Egypt so at least we've got some backup. And God said, don't do that. He told the kings, do not make treaties with the other nations. And that was going to be an act of faith by which they needed to trust their God. But they did. They saw what happened up in the northern kingdom of Israel with the Assyrians. Now the Babylonians are on the rise. The Babylonians conquer the Assyrians. The Babylonians are becoming mighty. They're starting to demand tribute from Judah. Hey, if you don't want us to come conquer you, you better pay us. You know, give us your lunch money. You know, they're bullying the, uh, the, the Judeans. Judah panics and says, oh boy. Okay, we, the writing's on the wall here. And instead of saying, hey, you know what? Let's trust the Lord. They say, hey, somebody get down to Egypt and get a deal with them just in case. So they do. Word gets to Babylon. Oh, you're striking deals. Oh, you're striking deals with nations. You're not paying tribute. You're paying tribute to them. Okay, we're coming in. And so they look out on their ramparts waiting for the Egyptians to come as their valiant knights to come up and defend them. But their eyes grow weary watching for the Egyptians never come. Of course they don't come. They think they can solve this with good negotiations and good foreign policy. This is not a foreign policy problem. This is an idolatry and sin problem. The problem is not with the Babylonians nor with the Egyptians. The problem here is with God. But we see they have put their trust in other nations and not in God. So verse 17 gives us another picture into what is going on here. What's the sin of the people of Israel? And then again, back to just how bad it is as they're fleeing the city. They tracked our steps so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils 
the anointed of the Lord, that is the king, right? Our very life, our king was caught and thrown into the pit. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. But everything has fallen apart. So our king is captured, our prophets are blind, and our priests are a bloody mess walking out of the city. That's the state of Israel. And then finally, we get, we get the nation of Edom, who is, these are the descendants of Esau, who, you know, they were in some friendship with Israel, but they were like rivals, and the Edomites were always trying to be the better power, and the Israelites trying to show them up. And now the Edomites, sort of their cousins, are happy to see the Babylonians coming in and defeating them. And they're clapping, and they're kind of mocking the Israelites. And the prophet deals with it. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. Go ahead, have your day. But the couple come to you as well. The couple come to you as well. Now, what do we do with this text, having surveyed it? So let me just remind us. Basically, my points have been, John and Jackie, you're getting to hear all four sermons in one because they're all the same. <laughs> what do you do with a text like this? When we deal with a text like this, it's very important to know what we're looking at. And I want to say to you, it's very easy to read this and think you're reading history. And you are. You are. Right? We're reading a text that's going back to 586 BC, you know? And easy for us as 21st century Americans to think, wow, it was really bad back then. <laughs> to look way back and think, I'm reading history way back there. But I want to challenge you. I want to give you different glasses to look at the text through today. I want to tell you, you're not reading history alone, though you are doing that. You're reading prophecy. You're reading prophecy. Because the destruction of Jerusalem, though you could never have imagined it, that it could actually happen, happened. And as it's being destroyed, the poet reaches out to the Edomites who are kind of looking snickering even, sneering, scoffing. And he says, hey, okay, if, if you want to do that, go ahead. But I just want to warn you, you will drink this cup as well in time. And I don't think that's a word just for the Edomites. That's a word for the Edomites, but for all of us. This poem is a prophecy in as much as it is history. Hence, our New Testament reading today from the book of Revelation, when you hear the image of the bowls of wrath being poured out, the, the, the very destruction that's being poured out upon the world is in some sense no different than this. This text is a reminder to us that God will not remain silent forever. Do not think because we have forgotten him that he has forgotten us. Do not think that because we have forgotten his law that he has forgotten his law. Our God, says the psalmist, is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. While it is still called today and the wrath of God has not fallen, repent. Repent. Brothers and sisters, we have to take the, this very hard poem of Lamentations and use it as a spur for our own souls to remind us that our God is a consuming fire. 
He will not allow sin to endure. He will deal with it in his justice. The fire will fall. The judgment will come upon all nations just as it came upon Israel. And I don't mean upon nations. I mean at the end of the age, it will come. And yet there is hope for us. This text has a little glimpse of it in the prophetic present. He takes he takes something and he puts it into the prophetic present in, in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. Like there's an end. And he, although there, as he's writing this, right in the middle of it, he writes prophetically, it will end. Right? The Lord will accomplish this. And of course, this does point us to the hope that we have as Christians. Because if we view the timeline of history and the judgment in Adam and then the judgment in Jerusalem and then the judgment at the end of the age. So the judgment that comes to Adam in the day you eat, you will surely die. And it doesn't really seem that bad. They're kicked out of the garden and okay. But then in Jerusalem, we see what that judgment really looks like and what the sin really looks like and what the judgment really looks like. And the sin looks a heck of a lot worse than it did in the garden. And the judgment looks a heck of a lot worse than it did in the garden. And we start to get a glimpse of what sin, what sin is and what sin deserves. And even that is now a pointer to the end. That if that's our timeline, the judgment in the garden, the judgment in Jerusalem, and now pointing forward to the full reality of the fulfillment of the garden at the end times. If that's our timeline, I have good news for you because in that timeline we have judgment, judgment, judgment. But then tucked in the middle of this section over here is judgment. Between the judgment of Jerusalem and the judgment at the end of the age comes another judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. And think about Jesus Christ in light of the text that we read today. The reason this all happened is because of our prophets, priests, and kings. And I've talked to you before about the reality of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. But isn't it interesting? Their king has been thrown into the pit. This is how bad it's gotten. Their king is thrown into the pit. And here we look at Jesus Christ, and there's the king, bound up, taken captive. The prophets are blinded. The minute I read this, the image that came to me was Jesus when he's blindfolded, spit upon, slapped, and they say to him, while he's blindfolded, oh, you're a prophet, well prophesy, prophesy to us, tell us, whack, tell us who's hitting you, striking him with a stick, tell us who's doing it, prophet. We've got a king bound up, we've got a blinded prophet, and we've got a filthy, disgusting priest being nailed to a cross. The most clean thing, the Son of God, has become vile and disgusting. He who knew no sin became sin for you. The most pure and beautiful thing, being, became the most vile and disgusting, unclean thing for you. That you might become you, the disgusting thing, me, the disgusting thing, might become the beautiful, pure righteousness of God. 
The good news of the gospel is that God himself entered down into the ash heap, entered down into the filth and the muck and the mire of our condition of our sin and took it upon himself. He stood with us. He stood for us. The very God who brought the judgment enters into the judgment so that he might deliver you from the ultimate judgment. He took the place of the vile prophet. He took the place of the vile priest. He took the place of the vile king for you and for me. The hope of the, the reason why I can tell you today to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is because in him, all of this prophetic judgment, and again, as Mark said, this is but a shadow of that final judgment. You think this is bad? Again, hell is eternal. But Jesus Christ has entered into it so that we who trust in him might be made pure. And you could never, could, could you ever believe that the Son of God would be nailed to a cross? Just like they say, oh, the nations wouldn't even believe that the, the Jerusalem could be torn down one stone, not left standing on another. And Jesus says, that's me, right? Tear this temple down in three days, I'll rebuild it. You could never have imagined that the Son of God would be hung on a cross. Yet there he is. Not because the nations have overcome him, not because God was angry with him, but because of the love of God. He entered there for you so that you and I, who deserve this and much more, might be free. But if we don't reckon with the fact that we deserve this, we will never appreciate Jesus. He will always just be a figurine on a wall, a little image. The cross will be a little image we wear around our neck that never moves us because it's a token of a once-believed faith. But if we reckon with this, if we reckon with the hard realities of what our sin deserves, then we will fall before him. Then we will worship him. Then we will cling to him in the midst of our trials because we know what he has done for us. So brothers and sisters, I challenge you, even in the midst of dark texts like this and dark psalms that we sing, again, may the darkness of this, the reality of it, be the backdrop for the brightness of Christ to shine forth, for he is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, even for the dark things, we give you thanks. We deserve this and much more, but we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, the one who entered into our mess that he might deliver us from it. And so, Father, while it is today, give us repentant hearts. And we pray for those who do not know you, Father, that we love. We ask that by your grace you would soften their hearts, that they too might trust and know the Lord Jesus Christ. He who, though he knew no sin, became sin for us, that we through him might become the righteousness of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.